are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Clearview Social launched in 2013. They scaled up to 2021 to over 2 million bucks in ARR and ultimately were generating real EBITDA, 400 to 700K per year. They sold for 13X EBITDA in uh, 2021. Um, Adrian owned 60% of the business. Employees owned about 9% of a 15% option pool. So they celebrated. There are about 15 folks um, in that option pool as well. And again, at the exit, Adrian then said, okay, 70% of the cash came up front. 20% in year two, and then the last in year three, or and sorry, in year two, which he's just finishing out now, moving on to his next thing, which is helping and consulting companies hit that first million dollar mark. Hey, folks, my guest today is Adrian Day, and his passion is helping companies scale. He learned this by accident. Three years ago, he was asked to volunteer as a coach for a group of young entrepreneurs as part of EO Accelerator in Utah. He was hesitant because he was building his own SaaS company, but then he agreed. In his first year, he helped multiple young companies grow and reach a million bucks in revenue. In the process, he actually ended up selling his own company, Clearview Social. At the time of sale, they had over 60,000 users in 12 countries. We had the pleasure of interviewing him back in 2020 pre-sale. Now we're going to get an update. Adrian, you ready to take us to the top? Let's go. All right. So for folks who missed that article, I'm going to give it a quick summary, right? You had scaled about 180 customers. You were effectively Hootsuite for lawyers. Um, you had passed about a $2 million run rate. And I believe you, you have to correct me on this one. I think you were bootstrapped, right? We took, a, we took a small amount of angel funding, you know, so it was kind of 50, 50. Yeah. Like, but, but sm- like under 500 K. Yeah. yeah. We said we took about a million. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I still yeah. call that capital efficient. You <laughs> took less than one X your ARR. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so I'd love for the next 15 minutes to effectively be a crash course on how to, how to sell your sub $5 million SaaS company, right? So let's start backwards. What was the date that you guys announced the closing? Like the sale of the company? Sale of the company. Yeah, yeah. So March 22nd, 2021. And you launched in what year? Uh, December 20th of 2013. So it's an eight-year journey here. Okay. Yeah. So again, people, this yeah. is what it takes, right? It's the long, slow journey, right? So eight years. Um, now talk to me about why you decide to sell and how you met the buyer. Yeah, absolutely. So um I kind of got to this point where I had put my team in place. We had a great product and we kind of hit up against a TAM problem. So the industry just wasn't that big and we'd eaten most of the market. And after trying to pivot into other other sectors. I just realized I just wasn't having fun anymore, you know, and it was so much fun building it that it, it just kind of was time, right? Uh, so that's kind of what made me decide to sell. And also, we had turned the corner in in terms of positive EBITDA, and so it was like not only am I kind of feeling like I'm ready to sell, we have something that someone might buy, you know? Yep. So how and did so, you do that, um, right? I mean, you you were bored, so you wanted to sell, but you don't want everyone to think you want to sell because yeah. you get a bad price. Yeah, you don't want to think it's a fire sale, right? So honestly, what I did is I reached out to a few friends that had sold their companies uh, just to get advice. And one of those people said to me, told me their whole story. And they're like, by the way, I think, you know, I think our platform might want to buy your company after I told them my numbers. And yep. I said, okay, that's great. And then at the same time, I had a, a kind of follow-up podcast with you 
where you said, what's your EBITDA? And you said, I think someone would write you a check for your company right now. And I was like, let's go. <laughs> and and I, I came on your program and you lined up three buyers. And actually, so this, I haven't told you this, but it was like a perfect storm. So this other friend who had sold their company, his private equity firm was interested in us. They were kind of dragging their feet. And then you brought to the table another buyer who right on the program made an offer. They sent over a term sheet. We had another term sheet from these guys. And, and the, the crazy thing is the buyer you introduced me to, um, their numbers, their terms were terrible, but the other guys didn't know that, right? Yeah, so it, it gets the ball it, going. It doesn't matter right. if it's terrible. That's right. And they didn't know all the terms. They just knew the yeah. price, right? So, so they had much better terms and they bumped up the price and, you know, structured a, a two-year earnout so that I could get all the money I wanted for the company. And yeah, we, we had a deal. And that's am- yeah. that's amazing. So so yeah. if I had to sum that up, if you're listening right now and you're also tired and you've been working for eight years and you're doing two and a half million bucks of AR and you want to sell, but you don't want to look desperate, the trick is really to get your numbers out there in a way that is enticing, that doesn't say, hey, we're for sale, here's our numbers. It's more like, hey, here's our numbers, we're on a podcast like Nathan's or some other reason, hey, we're I'm catching up with old friends sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's the thing is everyone's so guarded about their numbers, but if you can find some ways to get them out there, I think what you want me to say, Nathan, is trust Nathan with all your data, give him all your numbers. <laughs> no, but, but it did help to get it out there, right? Because I found other buyers. Now, look, if my company had been a little bit bigger or we'd had, you know, been to a million in EBITDA, it would have been simple. We could have hired a banker. We could have done a full process. They could have shopped the product, but really like when you're under a million in EBITDA, you you have to be you have to do a little more selling right like i had to get out and talk to people and find the right buyer for for where we were yeah no it's important i mean getting this fomo thing going is is critical i mean i full disclosure have i won't name them but i have founders who call on my show specifically because they want a reason to share their numbers live where it looks like i'm beating it out of them but really they want to share it because they yeah. want the market to know to induce bids right yeah. So like, yeah. that's a very good way to like use me to your effectively your advantage. But to your point, you sort of had some sort of number in mind, I imagine. Ignore the offers and the term sheet. Yeah. How did you personally, Adrian, as a founder, eight years in, 2.5 in revenue, come to what your number was? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, think, I think the reality is every single day you're running a SaaS company, you live with this stress, this fear of it all crashing down, you know? And so... And then you have this dream of some huge exit, right? Like where you get like private island money, you know what I mean? Uh, and so when it came down to it, it was like, okay, you know, you know, what is like a single, what's a double, what's a triple, what's a home run? And it's like, if my eight years ends in a successful sale, um, like, you know, I, I kind of think of my sale as like a double, you know, as a solid yep. double I got. Um, yeah. I mean, I had, a, I had an, an, an amount of money in mind and it was close enough to that number. Uh, that it was kind of a no-brainer. Can you obviously this is get sensitive, but the more you can share, the better learning. I mean, can you share something that um you're open to sharing that gives us a yeah, sense of what yeah, the yeah. deal size so, was? So let me share this. Okay. So our EBITDA was between let's just say between four and seven hundred thousand dollars at the time of the sale. Okay. Yeah. And the framework that we were bought under is 13 times EBITDA. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And so yeah. I was able to negotiate, right? Because we're on a growth trajectory. By the way, Clearview Social has now hit a million dollars in EBITDA in the two years since we sold. So yeah. we, we've had great success for them since then. 
And if I'd waited two years, yeah, I would have made more money, but it's like, I have, I have no regrets. It was like the right thing at the right time, you know, but kind of, how did you calculate that EBITDA? Was it like, okay, they're, I'm going to make this up. They're buying you in March, take March profit, multiply by 12, or was it trailing 12 month total EBITDA added together was 400 K to 700 K. Yeah. It really was projected 2021 EBITDA. Okay. And then a multiple of 13 X on that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I see. And that's a win to get them to agree to a projection. Yeah, that's right. But this is also the private equity game is this kind of EBITDA arbitrage. Because if mm-hmm. they can buy companies at 13X, they they put them all together into a bigger company and then they can sell them for 20X. Yeah. Yeah. So, Interesting. You're right. So it's like, and I figured all of that out like a month before the deal closed, right? Like it took going through all the due diligence and realize like where their heads were at really on on the valuations. And your 2020 projected EBITDA, you said was about five, between 400 and 700, about 500, 600K, something like that. Yeah, around there. Interesting. Yeah. How did you go about projecting that and building confidence in that number? Well, was there a top and, line growth? Was it cost cutting yeah, to get juice the, the monkey or this is this is the big my big learning through the process? I had tons of ad backs that I didn't think of as EBITDA. But once I once I put all those those ad backs back in, you know, like I probably underpriced my company a little bit. Name them. That's this is great data. What name some ad backs that surprised oh, you? Oh, just like ad backs, like I had a company car and I had I had extra like coaching resources that I used that didn't need to be part, right? And so it's like when I started adding all these things back, you know, we're looking at like two or three hundred thousand dollars of EBITDA, right? And you times that by 13. Yep. It, it's a substantial number, right? Yep. And so once once I had done all the financials for them and shown them what the real number was gonna be. I think they were doing cartwheels like, oh, this is better than they expected. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then let's go into the actual deal structure. You mentioned you were there for two years and that you had to put in those two years to get the ultimate number you wanted. So let's say the total deal size was 100%. What percent would you say was sort of like cash up front versus earn out versus like stock in the acquiring company? Yeah, yeah. So, so the way they structured the deal, it was about 70% up front, 20% year one, 10% year two. So I had a big incentive to do great in year one. But then the thing is, if they hit the number in year two, I still get the money because it's based on my stock ownership, not on my participation. Tell me, explain what that means. Okay. So because because I owned whatever 60% of the company as a shareholder, the way the deal was structured, all the shareholders, you know, got a first and second year earn out based on the performance of the company. I see. Not, so you own 60% of Clearview when it's sold. When it's sold, right. I and they see, bought it I and see. they bought 100% of it. But as a shareholder, I had rights that as long as we hit our EBITDA target in 2021, EBITDA target in 2022, which we haven't done yet, but they're on track, right? It's like that I'm going to get this other yep. piece. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. This makes a lot of sense. So there was no stock. You guys didn't take any stock in the acquiring company. Well, so I had the option to roll in whatever money I wanted into the private equity fund. Right. And so uh, I opted to take a, a, a chunk of that and roll it into the private equity firm. And when they have a recapitalization event, then I'll get a second bite of the apple. Did you give you premium terms as a private equity fund investor? Like, you know, bigger carry, less, you know, it's in a two and 20. It's like, you know, one and something else. Well, it's not a true private equity firm. It's really a family office that buys okay. up companies and recaps them every few years. So it's a cool yeah. model. Yeah, yeah. So I have the same terms as all of the other kind of, you know, LPs or whatever. 
Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Well, so, I mean, I guess folks can do the math, right? If EBITDA projected in 2021 was between 400 and 700, let's say it was just 500 K to make the math easy at a 13 X, it's like a 6.5 deal price of which 70% was upfront. So I think it's 4.5 million cash up front with a juicer kicker, you know, of another call at one to 2 million you could earn over the next 24 months effectively. Yeah, so you're with you're within fifteen percent of all my numbers. There. Yeah, so why not <laughs> leave? I mean, why? The idea. Yeah, right. why? There's a lot of founders that like get these earnouts, and like because thirty yeah. percent, it's like your time is more valuable than the extra million you could earn over the next two years. So why not yeah. leave right when it closed? Well, it's like my earnout in that first year, I didn't even have to stay a whole year. Like we closed end of March, I just had to stay till the end of December, and it's like I have a great team, we have a great flow. I wasn't, I already was only working 20 hours a week because I, I had a great team, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was like, okay, I could keep my benefits, keep making money and then guarantee that I get this first year earn out. So it just, Smart. it just made sense. But by the, by the beginning of the next year, I actually went to a ski event with Dan Martell with yeah. all those other, to bald face. I don't know. He's probably invited. This is me. an intense, this is not like a, you know, go little, like a little ski event. This is like get in a helicopter with skis, drop you to the top of the mountain, like almost die on your yeah, way down right. kind of ski. <laughs> so, so I'm with all these amazing entrepreneurs, you know, a full year into this earnout, and they're all living the life of their dreams, building their new things or on to their next adventure. And I got back from that trip and I was just like, dude, it's time for me to like take my life, you know, back. And so I literally came back from that trip gave my notice and it took him a few months to find my replacement. Uh, you know, now I'm on to my next thing. So, so what is your next thing? Yeah. So what I loved, I love building my company. And then, then three years ago, as you said, uh, I started volunteering as an, over the EO accelerators, helping companies grow to a million dollars in revenue a year. And in that first group, I've had like seven people graduate already and hit that number. And I was just doing, I was doing it for free. I wasn't even getting paid, but I just loved it. And so, um, so now what I do is my company is called scale to sell. Uh, and I am a professional EOS implementer, the entrepreneur operating system that follows basically the system laid out in traction. And, and so that's what I do full time now. So I launched it a few months ago. Um, I, you know, I, I already have nine clients and I just, I love the work. I love, I love helping companies and, and executive teams not go through all the suffering I went through in my first few years, right? Because there's, yeah. there's just, there's a simple structure for growing and selling a company. And that's what I'm trying to help companies do. When you did sell your company, how many folks were on the team full time? So we had 15 people. How did, so for someone listening right now, thinking about selling, right? And, and they're like, yeah. oh my gosh, how do I tell the team? Like, what about people that don't okay. understand how their options worked? Like, yeah, yeah. how do you do all that? So this is obviously there's some training around options and people like it's complicated. Options are complicated. But here was my biggest surprise in selling my company. Universally, all of my employees were so thrilled that we sold because it's like winning the World Series. You know, it's like we build a company and we sold it, right? Like everyone was so happy that we set this goal and we achieved it together. How know? much did they own at exit the ESOP pool effectively? Like 10%, 15% or nothing? Yeah. So the so so the the ESOP pool was we had set aside about 15%, but we had only awarded about nine of the 15. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So got it. So good. I mean, at a six point five million dollar deal, right? Ten for that's six hundred thousand to split amongst, you know, the employees yeah, that have been working so, for a couple so, of years. And that's we great. had two or three employees that they got the, the biggest check they'd ever seen in their life. You know, and it wasn't life-changing, but it was a great outcome. You know? How did you teach them about things like taxes and how to process yeah. that and QSBS and all of this kind of stuff? 
Yeah, I didn't really tell him about QSBS, <laughs> but but um, <laughs> because I think it. You're a bad. lawyer. Come on, that's like no, a no, big no. thing. No, I mean only because as option holders, they don't get the advantages of QSBS. Uh, is that because right? they're not they're they didn't get it on day one? They didn't have it for five years. Right. So under QSBS, which like every every company, every software company out there, if you're not a C corp, like change to a C corp immediately because you have to hold for five years as a C corp. To get QSBS protection. So yep. best advice anyone ever gave me was to, to, to have a, a C Corp, not an LLC, so that I could get QSBS and not have to pay. You so know. the reason, just to be clear, the reason your employees can't take advantage of that is because they were on vesting plans and options versus you had the common shares with like right. prior five years to exit. So you could take advantage of QSBS. Right. And one of my employees, my first engineer, he left a few years before and he, he exercised his options. When but he left. He, right. And so he had actual shares, but yep. he didn't hold them for five for years. For five years. Yeah. Right. 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 So anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so, so I didn't explain it to them because I don't think it, it wouldn't have made them any, I don't know, sadder or happier if, to know about If it, they right? wanted to optimize that for taxes, could they have rolled their earnings into the family office, like private equity fund, and effectively hold those commentaries until the five years hit and then take the. No, no, they couldn't. I mean, the big challenge is just that. The whole point of options is that you maximize for taxes, right? You give options so they don't have to pay taxes on them, right? Mm -hmm. And if they if you pay, have to pay taxes on those options, you're taking a huge risk if the company doesn't succeed, right? So, yeah. so I don't know. So, it, I wish though, I wish that option holders had better tax treatment because it, it seems kind of unfair that these yeah. option holders they're taking all the same risks as the original entrepreneur you know, in like staying with this company and then they get taxed with, like with regular income. So it, it's not, yeah. I just don't think it's very equitable. What else for founders like you thinking about selling and they've got a team of 15, what else should they think about? Talk to me about the things that like surprise you that you never read about in a blog, just it yeah. hit you over the side of the head. It was a last minute emergency thing you had to get done before you, you close the deal. Yeah. So, so probably the most expensive investment that was a hundred percent worth it was two years before sale. We hired a fractional CFO company to come in and completely, completely clean up our books. And so which, which say, firm? What's their URL? Claim, so we used, we used preferred CFO. It's a local company here in Utah that they work nationally though. And, and they made sure all of our accrual postings and all of our, just everything was dialed in exactly the way a buyer wants to see it. And, and, and listen to this, when we sold the, the company that bought us, when they handed our finances to the outside accounting firm to, to do the due diligence, they literally said, we have a Christmas gift for you. These are the best finances we've ever seen, you know, from one of these small size SaaS companies. That's amazing. Right? Okay. So preferred, so preferred, like preferred CFO.com. What did yeah. you pay them per month? So they, they're expensive up front. So we paid them five or six grand a month, but that was just for the three months for them to clean up our books. Right. So once yeah. they did that, we actually transitioned to something else. But just to make sure your financials are dialed in and all of your cruel, you know, all of your postings and the way your amortization sheets, charts are set up. I mean, it's just going to leave less question marks in the minds of your buyers. So, so that makes sense. So you spend, you spend 18 to 24K sort of getting everything clean from preferredcfo.com. What'd you move to after that then? Yeah. You know, after that, they had created all the reports. We had a really good bookkeeper and we we're able to just use the same. Right. right. I mean, we had really good... Practices. So internal bookkeeper. Yeah. yeah, that's right. 
Okay. Interesting. And interesting. I love that approach. That makes tons of sense. Um, it, well, the, clean, the cleanliness does pay off and it helps to build that hygiene early on. So yeah, very yeah. cool, man. Well, Adrian, if people want to connect with you now, where can they find you? Yeah. You know, LinkedIn or Twitter is the best place. So Adrian Dayton, I'm the only Adrian Dayton on LinkedIn and Twitter. So yeah, check, check me right. out there. Yeah. Let's wrap up here with a famous five. Number one, favorite book. You can't say traction. No, no, I wouldn't. I, yeah. Favorite book is, um, Dang it, man. You got to give me preparation for these questions. You know? I know. If, if you um, don't have one top of mind, we can skip it too. So, so I'm going to go with uh, the book Dune. So sci-fi yeah. book for you there. Okay. That's good. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Um, CEO that I'm following, you know, there really isn't. Next question. <laughs> number number three, what's your favorite online tool uh, when you're building Clearview? Yeah, probably, probably Trello. Mm -hmm. I love Trello for managing meetings and tasks. Number four, uh, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Eight hours every night. That's good. And situation, married, single kids? Married, three kids. Three kiddos. And what are you, 42 now? 43. 43. Very good. Last if you question, ask me my, my, my birthday and credit card number, I'm going to get a little worried. Yeah. <laughs> What's something you wish you knew when you were 20? Um, I wish when I was 20, I knew uh, the power of setting big long-term goals. <laughs> Guys, there you have it. Clearview Social launched in 2013. They scaled up to 2021 to over 2 million bucks in ARR and ultimately were generating real EBITDA, 400 to 700K per year. They sold for 13X EBITDA in uh, 2021. Um, Adrian owned 60% of the business. Employees owned about 9% of a 15% option pool. So they celebrated. There are about 15 folks um, in that option pool as well. And again, at the exit, Adrian then said, okay, 70% of the cash came up front. 20% in year two, and then the last in year three, or and sorry, in year two, which he's just finishing out now, moving on to his next thing, which is helping and consulting companies hit that first million dollar mark. Adrian, thanks for taking us to the top. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Bye.